Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Deviation Approved Podcast. Today, we are talking to the one and only Combat Learjet. The Combat Learjet, also known as Steve, is a former U.S. Air Force pilot and currently flies for the airlines. You and I might best know him for his super popular aviation Instagram channel. As of the recording, so this is, um, it's February 23rd, you're almost at 1 million followers. Um, how, how long have you been doing the Instagram thing? Yeah, it's, it's crazy. Is it? I, uh, I just looked the other day. I wasn't exactly sure, but I think I've, I'm about five and a half years. I, I started, uh, about this time in 2016, I think is when I opened my account. So, okay. Um, how, how did that account 50, start? 50. Yeah. You know, when I first started it, uh, I just, uh, I, I decided I wanted to start an aviation page and I wanted to share some of the experiences that I was seeing, uh, at the time I was still in the military and I was flying the Learjet and I, I, we had a mission where we, we tested air defense systems. So we would go around the country and fly as aggressors and get, the airplanes that were sitting alert, uh, after 9-11 to launch and come up and identify us. So I had a lot of what I would consider really cool footage of, uh, fighters off my wings. So that's, that's kind of why I started it. I thought I'm just going to share some of this. And plus the fact that I, you know, we do some neat stuff in the military and in aviation. And I just thought it was an opportunity to kind of put some of that out there. Um, so that's how I got started. Um, but over time I realized that I had a limited amount of my stuff and uh, I only shared my stuff originally. And then I just started seeing so much other cool stuff out there that I kind of transformed the page into, uh, more of just an aviation platform where I shared all sorts of cool stuff. And that's really when the page started growing is when I transferred over to just doing that. I, um, I usually try to see what someone's first post is on YouTube. Um, but you, you have so many posts. I, I got tired of scrolling through there. Um, yeah. <laughs> it, it's always cool to see where some of these pages start off and, and then where they end up. I, I couldn't even tell you what my first post is. So I probably should spend the time and go back and look at that myself. But um, my guess is it's, it's something to do with the, uh, the Learjet and, you know, one of my, uh, intercept videos or pictures, but okay. Yeah. yeah it looks like I, you have 8,112 posts out of today. So yeah. That'd be a lot of and that's, uh, that's something, that's something that I made a decision when I decided to run it as in really my pages entertainment, uh, on top of, of showcasing all the aviation stuff. And I, I don't know that I found the right formula or not. I just realized that in order to keep it relevant and kind of share, I get so much information. Uh, I only share a real small percentage of what people send me, but I have to, you know, at least have three, four or five posts a day to even keep up with some of the amazing content. So every day and it's, so it's my kind of part-time job, if you will. Yeah. Um, so it, it adds up pretty quickly if you do five or six posts a day, every day. So and that's kind of what I've been doing for quite some time now. Well, and you also are really good about actually getting back to people. 
Um, you, you know, it's not, some pages are definitely just a one way interaction where people post and then they disappear out of the comments. Right. Um, I, I noticed yeah. you, you, you must put in quite a bit of time to, to keep up actual engagement with your followers. Yeah, it's, uh, it, it does take a lot of time. Um, I'm in my current job as a, as an airline pilot, I have a lot of time on my hands, if you will, different places at my layovers and uh, you know, I get up in the morning sometimes and once I've had some quiet time, I'll look and, you know, go through and try to answer a few things. But I would say I try to do that because I feel a lot of people ask, you know, honest, uh, you know, have general questions. How, how do I become a pilot? What about this? And I try to answer those, but I just, I guess I'd like to get out there too. It's just overwhelming. I, there's no way I can get through all the the DMS that I have and the comments. And, um, I feel bad because I know that a lot of people, you know, ask really genuine questions and would like to have them answered. And I just don't have the ability to, to go through that. And I'm, nobody else runs my page. I'm a one person. Uh, I, I don't have anybody to help me with it at all. I just, I do it on my own, but, yeah. uh, it is, it is overwhelming, uh, to go through all that, but I do at least try to not just be that page that, never engages. So, uh, it does require, you know, some time to kind of go through that and see it. Yeah. And I, uh, I, go ahead. I was just going to say, I don't know how many I get. I probably get 50 to 75, a hundred DMS every day. And, you know, a lot of them are, you know, like I said, genuine type questions. A lot of them are like everybody just junk and trash and, trying yeah. to send you stuff or whatever. So I use the analogy. It's like a, a dumpster. There's a lot of trash in there, but there's some gold coins and that I'm looking for those gold coins to repost and show other people. So, but uh, unfortunately you got to dig through the, the dumpster to find that. So, yeah. Um, when I first joined Instagram, I, Instagram has never really been my native platform. Um, I think it was Oshkosh 2018, maybe. Um, mm -hmm. and I was like, oh, well, there's a lot of aviation people on there. So I should jump on there and follow it around. And, um, I took a picture of someone who had a chemtrails patch on their backpack. And next to that patch, mm -hmm. there was the combat Learjet patch as well, which I, I knew nothing about at that point. Right. So I, I was like, ah, funny <laughs> chemtrails. So I posted that. And then I think I tagged you as well. Cause I'm like, oh, combat Learjet. It's like a, a, a big page. And then like, to my surprise, you shared it and you followed me back. And at that point I, I had maybe, I don't know, like 50 followers. Um, yeah. I was like, Oh wow, this is, this is really cool. And that was kind of my, my introduction to Instagram. So thank you for that. Yeah. 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 You bet. That's awesome. Yeah. I think it's funny. And the Kim trails has been something that I've kind of uh, teased along the way, just because I, I was asked that early on when I first started running my page is if I could, you know, describe what chemtrails and I, I didn't even know what a chemtrail was at, fir at first. I'm like, uh, you mean contrails? They're like, no chemtrails. <laughs> so as I went through it and tried to describe that these weren't really going on like they thought they were, um, that's when I realized there was a whole following of people that absolutely believe that we're, spring stuff out of airplanes to uh whatever manipulate the environment and 
I, I tried to rationalize with them and realize that didn't really go over. So then I just, my satire is my humor. So I use satire. So that's why when I saw that in the patch, it, it made me smile. Um, but um, I, I don't do too much with the chemtrails anymore, only because some people take it so seriously. Um, I actually had some threats uh, online because of chemtrails. So oh, wow. that's what, that's when I realized that, okay, this is some people really believe we're poisoning them. And it's, I don't know. I, I try to keep my page lighthearted and have a good time. And sometimes that, that seemed to me to get a little bit, go down some darker rabbit holes. I didn't really want to go down. Yeah. Yeah. That's fair. Um, did you see that article that was talking about how the approach path into DFW was seeding the clouds just enough to cause a local snowing phenomena? Did you see that? I did not. Uh, and it, I, I mean, stuff like that would not surprise me that, it, you know, it, it helps to generate, you know, and not to get into all this stuff, but, uh, you know, maybe it is enough if there, if there's moisture there and you got a lot of airplanes on the same path, I, I that that's something I could see because seeding is a real thing. And, you know, that's what people always argue. Well, we see cloud. Yeah, we do. And it works and it helps increase the snowfall, but, uh, that's different than a large scale global, Right, chemical, yeah. dump, chemical dump in the atmosphere, but that's interesting. I did not see that article. Oh yeah, yeah, it was uh, it was a uh, maybe a week ago or so. Um, and it, it makes mm -hmm. sense. I mean, you have so many airplanes flying the exact same path, more or less. Yep. Um, yep. It, and I remember after nine eleven, I, I think there was some minor climate change because there wasn't as many contrails, so there was more sunlight hitting the earth. Mm. Um, yeah. Yeah, it just these minor little differences, but um, and they may be able to look back on 2020 and say the same thing when we reduce flying greatly. Right. Know, yeah. Well, and also cars and other transport. It seems like you have some fun with the flat earthers as well. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Same thing. Uh, I was hit up early up early on by somebody going, "Hey, can you see the curvature of the Earth when you're up there?" And I said, well, I don't necessarily see the curvature of the earth. However, I do see indicators that the earth is curved, uh, always usually right as the sun's coming up or the sun's sitting, depending on how you're flying in the atmosphere and the clouds, you will get a shadow of the earth projected up onto the atmosphere. And it's very, cur it's obviously curved. Yeah. Um, so so I, I would explain that, but they would always want to know like, yeah, but do you see the Earth's curvature? And I'm like, well, I'm not up high enough to literally see it. There are very specific times where I have. I, I was in Alaska one time in the sun. Uh, it was dark, and just as the sun was starting to come up, we could see, you could see, I took a picture, and there's a little bit of curvature of the Earth um, that I could see, at least in my photo. Um, but so I, I thought it was a joke at first. And again, a lot like chemtrails, I tried to talk to them about this and then realize that there really wasn't any talking them out of it. So again, I defaulted to my humor of satire and began, uh, you know, poking fun of it a little bit, at least the theories. So I, ne I never want to like call out directly in people that believe it, but I definitely will call out the theory is, and, and is ridiculous. And, but yeah, so that's, kind of became something along the way and i started posting something every friday for flat earth friday and and it 
now I have a lot of flat earthers who follow the cow. I just recently posted several videos of the Mars uh, landing mm-hmm. uh, with the rover, and there's just all sorts of flat Earth comments. All I mean, some people realize it and say it in, you know, in satire, but there's a lot of people that really believe the Earth is flat and call it out as fake, and so yeah. Well, what do you so, do? Yeah. So, <laughs> so I, I've tried, <laughs> unfortunately I can't really, uh, um, I can't really, uh, change anybody's mind on that. So I have a good time with it. Yeah. Um, what, what's, what's the beef with, uh, with you and pilot stuff? Yeah. So pilot stuff and I are really good friends. Actually, we, we, uh, we, uh, we worked together for like 17 years. He flew the Learjet as well. So we, okay. we deployed together. We flew together. Uh, the unit I was in was real small, only two airplanes and, you know, a couple dozen uh, pilots. And so you get to be really good friends. And so he started his Instagram page, not too long after mine, but, uh, he, uh, um, and just, we always gave each other a hard time, even in the unit. So, um, we, we pulled tricks on each other and, you know, we had a, there was this time where these, it was Easter time and these peeps showed up in the office and some, for whatever reason, we began hiding them in each other's stuff. So I'd put them <laughs> in his backpack and he wouldn't know it. He would haul them around for six months and then he'd find them and, and then he'd hide them in some of my stuff. And then I'd finally find them. And uh, over time, those things become little rocks. And uh, right. but it, it was things like that. We just gave each other a hard time. So once we both got Instagram pages and it just came naturally, I started giving him a hard time on there. And so uh, a lot of people ask me, do you really hate that guy? I'm like, no, we're, we're actually really good friends. Uh, I mean, he runs his page a different way than I run mine, but we're good friends. And we, we like to give each other uh, a hard time. So. Yeah. Yeah. That, that, that's always fun to watch. Um, so I'm going to stick yeah. on Instagram just a little bit longer before we move on to actual flying stuff here. Um, you have, like I said, you almost have a million followers. Do you feel like, I, I mean, this started as something fun and kind of lighthearted and just an interest of yours. Do you feel like you might have a greater social responsibility now that you have a million people, you know, following along and, and listening to what you have to say. And, and I'm guessing in some part their, their opinions are, are shaped by how you present things. Is that something that that's on your mind at all? Okay. Yeah. That's a great, that's a great question. Um, when, when I had a square page to put any effort into it, I didn't think about it. I just posted whatever I want to post my opinions, my thoughts. And somewhere along the way, I realized that, wow, there's a lot of people looking and reading and you do have an impact and not, not that, I don't know, not a great impact that people are going to do exactly what I say, anything like that, but you do, you do have a responsibility. And so I, I, somewhere along the way, I realized that. And I also on that same topic, I used to post more political stuff and my opinions. And then somewhere along the way, as I got tired of seeing people's political opinions, like from athletes or whatever, I just want to watch them play football or whatever it was, I realized I'm kind of that same thing. So I moved away from that and really kind of stay as neutral as I can on a lot of that stuff, just because I'm an entertainment page and I want to 
provide what people follow for. And they don't really care what my opinion is on politics or whatever. They just want me to post and provide good content, aviation content. So, so I would say, yes, I do. I have realized that I recognize that. Um, I'm, I'm concerned about, you know, how people think about certain things I say and put on there. So it is a responsibility. I would say, yeah, a lot of young people follow me and I realize that they're, they're looking, if you will, up to who you are in your page. So I try to keep a, uh, an idea of that. For example, I have rules on my page that I, I don't, uh, I have a lot of people send me videos. They mean well, they want me to share whatever it is or show me. But for example, I do not post fatality videos. So um, I was, in fact, just uh, sent a horrible video yesterday of uh, a Mexican Air Force Lear 45 crash. And I saw it around on several pages, but I, I just, I don't, I don't post that and I, I won't post that up. So, yeah. So I have a responsibility on my page to, I think, uh, provide a, a quality page that maybe doesn't go down some other areas. Yeah, Does that answer yeah. your question? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Very much. I, I, I'm sure that's something you have to be mindful about. You know, I, I have 800 followers and, and it's a company account, so I'm not too worried about mass influence, but, um, Kind of back on the topic of leadership there. So you flew T-37, T-38, and then you spent a lot of your time in the Air Force in the KC-135. Um, and at one point, you became the commander of that aircraft, right? I became an aircraft commander. Yeah, that's moving to the left seat uh, from the right seat. So um, after I'd been a co-pilot in the KC-135 for around a thousand flight hours is I think what most guys would upgrade. Then I moved to the left seat and become an aircraft commander. And then eventually I upgraded to instructor pilot and then ultimately to an evaluator pilot in that airplane. So I, I flew the KC-135 for about uh, nine, almost 10 years. Okay. Um, what, what kind of, so, so you are the commander of the aircraft. You're, you're in charge of, obviously the safe and you know conforming operation of that airplane are you what what kind of crew are you managing and what all are you responsible for as the aircraft commander in addition to the flying duties sure yeah well when you upgrade i think i upgraded an aircraft commander in the 135 i was probably around 23 24 years old that's a lot of responsibility you yeah. got a 50 million dollar airplane and then at the time the crew was aircraft commander, uh, co-pilot, navigator, and a boom operator. So you had a crew of four when you would deploy. So ultimately, you were in charge of making sure the entire crew, you know, got the mission done. And and you were ultimately in charge even when you weren't flying. If guys got in trouble or things happened while you're on the road, you would be the one getting a call going, what happened to your to your crew? So. Uh, it, it was a great learning experience as a young person to figure out how do I manage and run not only the mission flying, but manage the crew as we're kind of uh, going out. And the neat part of that that I really enjoyed was on the KC-135, you had a, the boom operator was enlisted. So you had three officers and one enlisted. And my very first boom operator was a senior master sergeant, which is uh, pretty high up in 
uh, enlisted ranks. And he really taught me a lot as a young, at the time, lieutenant um, on just, you know, leadership and how to how to interact and work. And I, I just I thought it was a great experience, at least in that a lot of air crews didn't have the officer enlisted ability. But the KC-135 gave me the opportunity to learn and work from them. And it really gave me a lot of respect for uh, how they came up in their rank system and what they go through. And it's just, it was a great, a great experience overall. And I'm really glad I had the opportunity to do that. Do you, uh, do you recall any lessons you learned on the KC-135 that you are employing throughout your life and, and probably especially today as a, as an airline pilot? Yeah, I, I definitely learned a lot. Uh, one of the, I've shared this story a little bit. When I was a brand new aircraft commander, I was deployed to Panama and we had refueled some AWACS down in South America. And I was trying to get back to Panama and that, that part of the world is right on the equator and thunderstorms are everywhere. And we had, we had been asked to give a little bit of extra gas to the AWACS, which we did. And at the time it looked like it was be a good plan and and as we were trying to get back uh thunderstorms were everywhere so we were dodging thunderstorms trying to get back short on gas um and it's one of those places that there's not a lot of great alternates you're you're if you divert you're going to an entire another country which causes all sorts of issues so anyway we got back and you know i just got in this mindset like i got to get on the ground the weather was bad we're getting beat up and heavy rain and, you know, uh, thunderstorms all around us. And I just was kept pushing, kept pushing. And it finally deteriorated to the point that, um, we, we got on final and I'm flying and I've just got a handful of airplane and they, they call the winds at the last second. And I just, I didn't hear them. My brain was max performed flying that airplane. And thankfully I had a guy in the jump seat who heard those winds and he called out and he said, did you hear the winds? And I said, I didn't. And the co-pilot asked for the winds again. And when we got them the second time, it had, it had switched around from a, a headwind that we were landing in to about a 15 or 20 knot tailwind on a wet runway, which oh, was wow. yeah. a bad, that's, that's bad deal. So thankfully uh, that broke the air chain and we did a go around and, uh, got out of that and held and collected our wits and come up with another plan. And we eventually landed fine, but that, that I have to land mentality. I learned a lot from that, that you don't, you don't have to land. And quite honestly, a lot of times when you force a bad situation, it really turns into, you know, turns into that. So I, I took away from that going, you know what, we can always go around, go around, and if we got to divert, we divert, but we don't have to get this right on the ground right now. So, so that was a, that was something that I learned as a pretty young, I was probably 23, 24 years old when I went through that experience. And I really carried that with me through the rest, you know, to my current aviation. Yeah. I, I think, I mean, our timing is such that um, just a lot, just a few days ago, United 328 suffered a catastrophic fan blade failure and, had a cowling, had cowling and other airplane parts leave the aircraft and there's a fire burning on the, in the engine. Um, and I think one of the things that maybe non-pilots or, or maybe even, you know, pilots like me that only have a single engine would think is like, 
how, how long do you want to stay up and troubleshoot versus beelining back? So I'd, I'd like to talk to you, at, you know, with your experiences about that incident a little bit, if you don't mind. Um, sure. Because I think you have some great insights. So what, uh, just starting from the beginning, what kind of indications are the pilots of this aircraft having inside of the cockpit as this is happening? And can they actually see the engine out of a 777 cockpit window? Yeah, well, let me start off by saying, number one, I'm not a 777 guy. I never flew the 777. So I, I and I also want to say I wasn't on board the that airplane that day um, sure. to know yeah. exactly what went on. So these are all just my, I, I would call my generalization, what I know is just an aviator. I would say on the outset, everything I can see, they did a fantastic job. Uh, just listen to the audio and seeing them come back around. Those guys really worked well. And along with air traffic control, helping them come back around and, and get it on the ground. Um, so I guess your first question is, yeah, you got to take care of the problem initially. So the, 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 we have, we have checklists and we have what's called a, a quick reaction QRCs, a QRH. There's, there's things that we do right away, depending on what the emergency is. And then you get, you get what we call get in the books and you start going through checklists and making sure you've, uh, properly secure the engine, shut it down, pull the fire handle, whatever it is that you need to do for that situation. And then you, you clean everything up. You make sure you run landing data for your situation. There's a lot of things that have to go on. So you, you don't really have the opportunity to just usually, unless you're on fire and the airplane has just got to get on the ground, we usually have to spend a little bit of time running through checklists and getting all the things taken care of. And that's exactly what it sounded like those guys did. They ran checklists. They got communicated. They got headed back towards the airport as they're running checklists, getting everything secured. And then when it's all said and done, you just bring it in. And we this is something we practice all the time. So every time we go to the sim, we practice losing an engine catastrophically sometimes and and running these checklists and bringing it back around and, and landing. So they did exactly uh, what they were trained to do and they did a good job of it. And, uh, it's, yeah. So I, I couldn't tell you exactly what was going on in the cockpit, not being there, but I was just saying from an outsider, uh, watching and hearing and seeing they did a great job. I don't think they could see their engines, uh, from the cockpit. They probably had reports maybe from the flight attendants telling them, Hey, we see fire, we see whatever. Um, mm -hmm. so you, you, you have eyes in the back that can help you. But either way, you're going to respond to the indications you have up front. If you have an engine fire uh, indication, you're going to go through uh, that uh, that procedure. And I, I, it sounded like they did a fantastic job bringing it back around and, you know, getting it on the ground. So, yeah, yep, that's that's why uh, you know aviation is so incredibly safe. Is yeah, sticking to the procedures, and you know yeah. from. From the outside, the communications also, I, so somewhat relevant to this, um, the Southwest flight that had a engine, possible engine fire and, and, you know, similar ish issue. I used the, so I'm on a fire department and uh -huh. we were doing radio training and I, I used the clip, um, of captain Tammy Joe Schultz communicating as mm -hmm. an example of good radio discipline. Um, yep. calm, descriptive, assertive. And then, um, I played another video of a guy who got, I think he VFR into IMC and 
he was communicating with ATC and he was extremely panicked and ATC was able to calm him down and kind of get him reoriented. Um, but the panic in his voice was contagious. Like I, as a pilot, I was getting anxious just listening to him. Right. And yep. yeah. that's something we, we try and we, we jokingly say, you know, you always got to sound cool on the radio, but I think it goes beyond just sounding cool because it, it conveys a command presence and, you know, if you sound calm, your your rest of your crew is going to be calm. And I, I certainly look up to aviation as examples of that. Um, they do a good job. And I'm sure that's all because of just the intense training and preparation you guys go through. Yeah, it really is. And, and that you're right. When you when we go to the sim, they throw all sorts of things at us. And really, that's something you learn over time and just just handle it. You know, let's let's take the. Uh, if you will, the closest shark to the boat and take care of that. And we'll just keep on uh, taking care of all the situations in a calm, collective and logical process is what really gets you through that. Panicking really only causes, uh, you know, more distractions and more issues. So, yeah, the the training and I, I, again, I, I, I don't know for United, but I'm guessing if the, the at least the captain to be a triple seven captain, he has a he's probably got 15, 20,000 flight hours and, or more. I, I don't, I don't even know. And then as a FO, same thing, lots of flights. So the experience level of that crew is it's, it's high. And they, like I said, they've obviously seen it and done it. And so it's just, and if you practice it long enough, just like athletes practice the, you know, their, their art and sports, they, when they go and do it in the game, it it's not really stressful because you've practiced it so much. So that's, really how I feel like that kind of went down and just all their training, uh, just really worked out for them. Yeah. Yeah. Luckily, uh, uh uneventful ending there. Um, no one got hurt, yep. fortunately yep. and on the ground too. Yeah. Um, yeah. Let, let's go, let's go back in time a little bit. Um, I understand you learned to fly in a Cessna 150 or 152. I did. Yeah. That was my first, I got my license in, uh, in a Cessna 152 and, um, I started, you know, doing a little bit. I also had some time in a 172 as well, uh, early on, but ultimately got my license before I went, uh, uh, into the military and, uh, went to pilot training. So yeah. was this while uh, you were in college or was this between high it school was. or? Okay. Yeah. Yep. Right. Yep. Graduated high school and I was in college and I started doing some flying when I realized that this was the path I wanted to go down. Um, I went ahead and, you know, worked and got my private pilot's license and, you know, so I'd worked, save some money to get that taken care of. And then I haven't really done much with that. Unfortunately, just once you get in the military and kind of started flying all the time and doing my stuff that I just, I haven't, I haven't done that type of flying. Uh, since college, really, everything's either been my military, or commercial pilot type stuff. Yeah, um, I I kind of miss flying a one fifty. I, I watch, you know, I'm working at airports all the time, so I watch people doing their their uh, patterns. And you know, you're just watching someone land, you you learn a lot that you can then take back to when you're flying. You know, like oh no, they're coming in a little faster. They they flare too late, flare too early. You know, they kick the tail out and. 150s are surprising. I mean, they're easy to fly, but they're, they're, they're I feel like they're hard to fly well um, in, in terms of 
you know, you, you fly something faster, you get scared of slowing down the airplane. Um, yeah. whatever the approach speed is 65, 55 on a one fifty. that's, that feels very uncomfortable when you're used to flying something like a Bonanza or even faster, like a T 38. What, what's an approach speed on a T 38. Ooh, yeah, it's reaching back there, but I want to say it's like 160, 170 <laughs> knots. something like that. It was fast. Yeah. Um, and yeah, it, and I, I, I enjoyed my time. I, I do remember though, it was, you know, that smaller airplane, especially in crosswinds, trying to get that thing down. And it was, it was challenging to learn. And I wouldn't say I, I really learned it well. I did it long enough to get, get through it. But uh, yeah, I had a great instructor who was a, he was an older gentleman and, and he just really uh, uh, took me under his wing and, and really helped teach me a lot of great stuff with that. Where, where did you learn how to fly? I flew in, uh, I learned to fly some in Albuquerque and some up in Farmington, New Mexico. Okay. And Far Farmington's a unique airport. They call it the USS Farmington because it's, it's got like a 500 foot drop off off the end of each runway. So it's, it's just set up on a Mesa, but the winds oh, are kind of, wow. kind of squirrely up on top. And, but yeah, it was a great place to learn to fly. I, I was grateful for that. Yeah. Yeah. 150s love that kind of, uh, final approach surprise, right? Yep. Yep. Exactly. Um, so you went yep. to college. What, what did you major in? Uh, a worthless degree, at least what I consider I was psychology was my undergraduate degree. Um, I realized when I got to college, it, they didn't care what you majored in. You, you just had to get a degree and you're going to go in the air force and fly. So, um, at that time I kind of took the path of least resistance and, uh, chose psychology. Now I would say that from the path, from that standpoint, but I also enjoyed, there were some areas in psychology, like, uh, I, I did enjoy, uh, like how they design cockpits and that kind of stuff. So I kind of focused more on stuff that would maybe, um, hu human factors type things that, mm -hmm. that, uh, and so that I, I like that area in psychology, but for the most part, I realized that that degree by itself was probably not going to get me where I wanted to go. So. And then, uh, did you go, um, did you do ROTC as well? Or did you go in as a, uh, to officer candidate school or I did ROTC. Yep. So okay. I went through college, did ROTC, um, graduated from ROTC there at Albuquerque. And then I went, I had to wait about nine months before there was a, there was too many pilots. So they were making guys wait to go to pilot training. So I waited about nine months and then, uh, I went to pilot training in Vance, Oklahoma. And once I started there, then that was, you know, I was kind of on my way. What year was this? I, I was in 90. Uh, I, I went in 91, graduated in 92. Yeah. And they started you off in the T-37 or did you fly something before that? Because you already had your PPL at this point, I'm guessing. Yeah, I had. I did. I didn't have. I had like 55 hours is all I had when I got there. So yeah, you start in the T37 and the guys that had a lot of flying hours, they, they really, it, they were ahead of the game when they, in the T37. Um, so, you know, I'm still learning how to use a radio and, you know, how to, 
just, you know, stay situationally aware, uh, trying to get used to going out and doing acrobatics and spins and not getting sick. And there's just a lot of stuff going on there. Um, so the, the guys that had a lot of flight experience coming into pilot training, they, they excelled in the T-37. Um, but the T-38 was the, <laughs> it was a great equalizer. So <laughs> by the time we got there, we, we'd all flown a little bit and there, there really wasn't much of that advantage left for it. Just, it moves so fast and trying to stay ahead and think that fast. It really was a, uh, a challenging airplane for, for most guys to get a hold of. I love flying it. I enjoyed flying it a lot and formation was a big part of it. So how well you flew formation was kind of determined how well you did in the program. So I enjoyed all that. Do you remember what your first flight felt like in the T-38? Um, I, I remember sitting, um, I remember sitting in the front watching the takeoff and it was, it was exceedingly fast. It, it just happened so fast that I couldn't even comprehend. Uh, I, I was just looking out the side going, this is, the speed of this aircraft is unbelievable because you fly around the pattern at 300 knots. Oh, wow. And I just, uh, I remember thinking, I'm never going to learn this. Um, it, it really, uh, it, it caught me off guard how fast it was. And then, you know, eventually you will, you're able to think at that speed. But, uh, um, I, uh, I, I, I just was blown away by how fast it was. Yeah. Yeah. Isn't that amazing how adaptable we are to whatever form of transportation we end up in? It really is. It, uh, I mean, it takes time and after a while you get used to it. And even now, I mean, I don't fly at those speeds, but you just get used to, you know, like, for example, I, I've told my friends this, that if you're driving in a car and you're a hundred miles away from your destination, you got a long time till you get there not really thinking about anything until you get there in an airplane, at least one that's moving a faster speed, a hundred miles is getting close. And you need, you need to be thinking about the descent, what's going to happen, what's going on next. So it's just a different mindset. Yeah. Yeah. That, that's a good way to put it. I mean, what a one fifty. You, you look below you, you're like, Oh, okay, I'm going to land there. And you can more or less land there. Right. There's no, no real planning required. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. It, it's, uh, it, it's amazing. Um, you know, you just have to kind of, you know, you get, get into the mode of thinking how, how fast, <laughs> how fast are things going to happen? Yeah. Yeah. I don't imagine a T-38 wants to slow down at all. Looking at it. Do they have any kind yeah, of air brakes? Like, we, you do have a, we, uh, we had it, we have a, uh, speed break we called it but same okay. yeah same thing and um again i'm i'm reaching way back there I haven't flown it in a long time but it, it it would slow you down some but uh um you know it's uh it, it it's it's one of those things where you just have to really manage that speed and it's it's very unforgiving if you get slow in that airplane those wings are tiny so i i was always careful to make sure that I, I didn't get slow in it. Cause it, it really would, uh, it would bite you if you got slow. And 
you how long did you fly the T thirty eight before they cut you loose in the world? Yeah, it's about six months, I guess, maybe seven okay. months. So, um, so you start in the T thirty seven. That's pilot training lasts about a year, and then um, you finish, graduate that, and it's different now. Um, only guys that are go to, going to fighters fly the T thirty eight. Everybody else flies the T uh, one if you're going to a non-fighter, but back in that day, they, their, their mentality was we train everybody as a fighter pilot. And then you go on to fly whatever you got out of pilot training. Okay. So what was your, what was your transition like then going to something huge, like a KC 135? Cause did you have an intermediate or did you go straight to first officer in the 135? Yeah, no, you just go straight to that. And I, I actually, I, I loved it. I did the, the KC-135 training was out in California. I enjoyed my training out there and, uh, it's, uh, it, it didn't move as fast as a T-38 plus you're out of pilot training. Pilot training is like a stress fest because, you know, a lot of guys are washing out. So it was, it was a gentleman's course. I really enjoyed it and I, I loved it. And it, you know, it, it takes some time obviously to, lo- to learn the mission, but, uh, uh, it was a fun mission to me. And yeah, you just start out in that. And then while I was flying the KC-135, I also flew the T-37 as a co-pilot because at that time you weren't getting enough flight hours as a co-pilot. So they had what's called ACE. Um, and it was another program that allowed co-pilots to, to gain experience and get flight hours. So I was flying the T-37 on the side with it, which was awesome. I love that. Yeah, that does sound so. So, could you just take it out and and go build hours, or or was it more structured than that? Yeah, it's pretty much. We would a uh, couple co pilots would go meet up, and we'd check out the jet, and on our days off, and we would take it and go do some training. Maybe go fly some approaches somewhere, land, get lunch, fill up, come back, and we did that quite a bit. It was a it was a fantastic program. And then when I changed bases. Uh, some bases had T-37, some, then they went to, uh, C-12s. So the King Air 200, mm-hmm. I was, I, I flew that as well. Um, in addition to the KC-135. So I got a little bit of time in that as well. How, uh, so, so you said you had about a thousand hours in the 135 before, um, you became that aircraft commander. How long did that take? Well, that probably took, uh, Back then, we weren't flying a lot. Uh, it was when I first started, we were only logging about 35 to 45 hours a month. So, not a lot. So, it, it took several years to upgrade to aircraft. Now, I, my understanding is, at least in the past, guys have deployed and gone, gone all the time. Some guys are getting a thousand hours and a little over a year. So, um, but I, I want to say it took me a couple of years to upgrade. Are you, um, are you very involved with what's going on in the back or is your job up front mostly just to keep a steady platform for boom operator and, and whoever's receiving fuel to, to be able to do their job? What, what's your, what's your level or, or how about this? Let, let's start with what, what does a typical refueling look like? Yeah. So you are involved. So, you know, the, the biggest part of the refueling is, you know, the day before you'd plan the mission out and figure out, 
you'd talk to the receiver, you'd come up with the plan and we're going to, we're going to meet at a certain point in a certain time. There's a, there's a couple ways that we could do that. We, we had one rendezvous was called an in route rendezvous. And basically we beat at the same point at the same time, different altitudes. Um, another uh, type of rendezvous we do is a point parallel where we're, we're heading at each other. Uh, we're offset a certain amount of miles to the right or left. Uh, I think it was usually to the right. And then when we get to a certain distance from the other airplane, we begin a left-hand turn and roll out right in front of them and then they would be behind us and then join up so so that was there was planning that went into that how you get together and then once we once we're able to get together then the receiver uh he he or she comes on up to the boom and the boom operator really is controlling the show in the back we're we're like you said keeping a good platform we're navigating for the entire flight we're talking to atc for the entire flight and the boom opera is taking care of all the stuff that goes in the back. He's flying the, the boom. He's the one that actually puts the boom into the receptacle. There's, they're called rudder vaders in the back, and he has the ability to fly that up and down, left and right. So the receiver flies into position and holds his position, and the boom operator is the one that actually flies the boom and puts it into the receptacle. So I guess to answer your question, we're, we are talking to the boom and if the boom sees something he doesn't like, he's telling us. And, you know, sometimes we have to do what's called a breakaway, which will get the airplane separated as quickly as we can. But uh, yeah, it was a, uh, it's, a, it's definitely a coordinated thing. The whole crew works together. And back in my early days, we had a navigator as well. They don't have one on the 135 anymore. It's just all glass cockpit doing it all that way. But the navigator was plotting the, course and making sure we're staying on it and help put all that together so so it was an entire crew to to make it happen is uh is there a specific range of motion that the the boom has or or like how much how much motion can that boom tolerate it if it's you know if you're near thunderstorms and, and bumpy weather how how resilient is that yeah so they have what's called an envelope um and I, each airplane has a different envelope depending on the airplane, but the booms knew all that stuff. Uh, that was, that was all cosmic to us up front, but yeah, that's all backseat that, that stuff. Boom, yeah. That boom can move around in a certain, it can go forward and back up and down left to right in a certain amount of envelope. Um, and one of the things we would train occasionally and the receivers would train and it, both of us is we would, they would test the envelope. So they would, the receiver would request to go all the way to the right envelope, all the way to the left, up and down. So, and, and they're showing the pilots on board there what the envelope looks like. So, so yeah. And then I would also say once we got connected and hooked up, it really did kind of become one in the sense that the, the two kind of move together once you are connected. The boom still kind of goes up and down and in and out. But once you're connected, it seems to, it seems to kind of go through turbulence and all that uh, is one big airplane, if that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah, sure. Well, what, how long is the boom? You know, I don't even know. It, it extends out there quite a ways. I, I, I don't remember what the, the actual length on it is, but, okay. uh, it's color coded. If you ever see pictures of it, that the color coding represents whether, you know, it's extended the right amount or if it starts coming in too close, then it gets into red and same if it starts getting out too far. Um, but the color coding is is an indicator to the receiver of where that boom is, how far it extended or retracted it is. 
Do um, is the refueling fuel linked to your airplane fuel, or are they separate fuel tanks? Uh, they are. We had specific tanks that we refueled from. They were main body tanks, but we could use that fuel um, as well, and we would transfer it around. And that was a challenge for the for the co-pilot when you were uh, when you had to move a lot of fuel. We would have to you would have to try to monitor how much gas you're giving the receiver. Plus you're, you're moving fuel from different tanks to put them into the tanks to give it to the receiver. So you're pretty busy. The fuel panel was a, was a busy job during certain times uh, of refueling. Um, but uh, that, that is the case. We could always use the fuel that we gave the receiver, except for, I also flew T models and the T model was designed to refuel the SR 71. Oh, it, it, oh it, yeah. That's, it that's was a Q, yeah. Yeah, it was a Q model. And then when the Q model went out of service, it's the same airplane, just had the newer CFM 56 engines on it. It became the T model. Um, and the T model, we did not burn the same fuel that the SR-71 had. I never, unfortunately, I was trained to refuel the 71, uh, checked out, everything's ready to go. And I even had a refueling mission planned and it canceled on, on the day of uh, the SR-71 had a lot of maintenance issues. And, and so I never got a chance, unfortunately, to refuel that airplane. Yeah, that, that would have been quite an experience, I'm sure. Yeah, yeah. It's amazing yeah, how big those SR-71s are. Yeah, they're a big airplane. I'm getting refueled compared to the KC-135, they're, they're not that much smaller. Yep, yep. It's a big airplane, and, it, and we would refuel it. I, if I remember right, the refueling speed was really fast. It was like 325 knots indicated or something. So we had to refuel it at a pretty fast speed. What, what do you normally refuel at, or is that different for every, every airplane? Yeah, every airplane's different. I'd say average around 270, 280 knots. Fighters are a little bit faster than that, 300 knots, depending on the airplane. C-130s, A-10s are much slower than that. They're like 210 knots or something. Plus, we had to put our flaps down for some of them. So it was uh, it was just one of those. Uh, it, you, that's stuff that you would brief the day before where you did it. And then. Um, you flew the 135 for, for how long? About 10 years. Okay. And one day you're flying over Colorado Springs and you think to yourself that that might be a good place to hang out for a while, huh? Yeah, I, I had a student. Uh, we were doing a, I was at the schoolhouse in Altus and we were doing a refueling track that came over Colorado Springs. And he mentioned that there was a little Learjet guard unit down there and he happened to have the contact for the, for the director of operations who was, you know, was a part of hiring guys. So I, I got the contact, contacted him, uh, kind of rushed it a little bit, you know, not unlike a fraternity. I went up and visited the unit and, and ultimately they ended up uh, hiring some guys and I got picked up uh, for the unit, which is great. So. And I got out of the Air Force, and now I'm in the Air National Guard at this point, full-time. I did a, I was a full-time guardsman. Uh, that was my only job, but I was in that unit now. What are, uh, what are your roles currently in there? 
Well, I'm retired now, so that that unit oh, okay. unfortunately is it, yeah, it's closed. Uh, it's closed down, and uh, uh, they lost the airplanes, and the the mission went away, un- unfortunately. But uh, you know, my time there, I was there for 17 years. You know, I did a little bit of everything. I was never the commander, or, um, but I did. Um, you know, scheduling, training, standaval, um, safety, all all the types of positions you would have in a squadron. I did did most of them over the time. We talked about doing doing like penetration testing with the with the combat Lear jets. Um, where where does the unaware, unafraid motto come from? Yeah, it's a it's not my idea. I I if you will, stole it from a, probably a smart lieutenant that come up with it, but <laughs> it's a, it's a tongue in cheek, uh, saying because we flew the Learjet all in Afghanistan and Iraq and all over in some of these, uh, not so nice places. And we didn't have any defense systems at all. So we went in and out of places that were hostile without any uh, defense systems on the airplane. So that, that became the kind of, like I said, tongue in cheek, we're unaware and we're unafraid. So we, we didn't really know what was out there and we went anyway. So, um, it was, a if you look at the patch, it's got that on there and then it shows a Learjet with a target on it. So yeah, it's a, it is, a like I said, it is a tongue in cheek type thing, but, uh, that's, that's where it came from. I'm not sure exactly who came up with that, but, uh, kudos to whoever designed that patch is fantastic. Good model, yeah. That's yeah. Yeah. Um, did did you recall any times taking fire? I I don't ever. I never personally took any fire. Uh, I know there was a couple times I held while the base was being shelled, if you will. They, you know, they were in in Iraq. A couple times we were on approach, and they would say, "Hey, the base is closed. It's you know, it's under attack." So we had those kind of scenarios, but. Uh, I, I never personally had any bullet holes or took any, you know, any shots that I know of. Um, so it's, uh, it's again, one of those things where, you know, there were threats were out there, but I, I, we, we weren't, we weren't stupid in just going into the, the worst of the worst, but there were definitely threats in some of the places that we went. Yeah. Did, did you fly a special like steeper descent profile or, or steeper climbs in and out of those types of places? They had the, what we call tactical departures and arrivals, and we did do some of those occasionally, um, depending on what was going on. And we practiced all that. You had to be checked out and all that. So it was a, it was a process uh, to find that. But the, the Learjet was really well-suited for that. Uh, it could really both climb and descend really rapidly. So uh, it, was, it was fun to practice and be checked out in that. We would, we would literally you know, it, it, it would descend like a piano when you needed it to. So, uh, it was, it was great. So we would, we would use some of that, you know, stay as high as we could on approach and then just do a rapid descent in to try to stay out of the threats as much as possible. I think there is, I saw a video of, a uh, one of the large transfers. I don't know if it was a C-17. I think it was a C-17 with thrust reversers descending at 17,000 feet a minute. Yeah. Yeah. I actually posted that up a few days ago. It was, oh, uh, that, that's probably where I yeah, saw it. Yeah. Then. Yeah. 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 It's crazy. Yeah. They, they have the ability 
uh, we could not do that. Um, but the C-17 can deploy the thrust reversers and, and really get it coming down. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's a hell of a round on, I'm sure. If you have to. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. There, there's all that stuff's planned and those guys know what they're doing. And yeah, you, you want to give yourself several thousand feet to, I'm sure to make that, make that out, but, uh, it's pretty impressive. Very cool. Um, so you, you were thinking of possibly retiring and then nine 11 happened or, or well, how, I did re- how, how did that sequence go? Did you, did you make it out? And I did, I had got out of the air force and I was already in the guard flying the Learjet and then nine, nine 11 happened. And, and I stayed, uh, yeah. So I ended up putting in 27 years total, uh, in air force, air national guard, a combination of both. And like I said, I am retired. I retired a couple of years ago, so I'm all done with it. Yeah. How, uh, how is the transition going from, um, military flying to civilian flying? It's good. I love my job now, uh, flying for the commercial airlines. I, you know, when you first get out of the military, there's a little bit of identity crisis. Who are you? I'd been in since I was 18 years old. Um, so you got to figure out, wow, it's weird not being in the military anymore. But once you, um, once you get, um, once you get out of the, out of there, then it, it really does. And then I got used to, uh, I got used to the, you know, the, uh, sorry, my car, I'll take that for a second. I got used to being out of the, um, out of the military and it really, uh, it really transferred over nicely. I enjoy it now being retired. So as a, as a guard unit, you get to stay in the same place, right? Is that Yeah, that's correct? The, yeah. that is exactly. Yeah. That's the beauty of the guard. You really don't have to, you don't have to move around. You get to fly the same airplane long-term. So you get really good at whatever the airplane you're flying. Um, plus you're in a unit with the same group of folks and the guard is those kind of units are, you know, you have to interview to get in the units. They're picky. Um, and so it's, it's a good group of folks that get to work together. So I really enjoyed it a lot. Uh, if I could do it all over again, I would probably just go straight to the guard and do the guard the whole time. Are there, um, kind of switching gears here a little bit, just looking over your, um, long flying career. Um, what are, what are some lessons in, tips, tricks, habits that you've developed that you wish more pilots knew about, especially pilots like me that are, you know, more so flying for entertainment or, or, you know, locally and don't quite get the same repetition of flying as, as a professional pilot. What what, what are some good habits that you wish more people knew about and more people practiced? Yeah, that's a great question as well. I, I would say I learned along the way. I, I was a big chair flyer. I, I really believe that you can trick your brain. I, I and I, this part of this came from psychology way back in the day. I remember there was a study out there of one group of people that were shooting free throws and one group that were envisioning themselves shooting free throws. And they found that just going through the mental gymnastics. And when I talk about envision, I, I don't mean just like, okay, you know, thinking about everything. I dribble the ball. I walk up to the line. I look at the basket and they were, they were going through all the repetition 
uh, repetition of shooting it without actually doing it just in their mind. And they found that those people were actually gaining <laughs> skills from just doing that. So to take that same mindset in the airplane, uh, chair flying and thinking through what you're going to do and how you're going to do it, fly in. And uh, I mean, I, I have spent hours in front of cockpit posters sitting in my chair with my checklist on my legs, going through all the things, you know, thinking through every aspect of the mission. And I really credit that is helping me because I'm, I'm below average on your pilot abilities. And I, I felt like that was what helped me to get through and stay on top of all that stuff. So. Yeah. You're, you're kind of priming the pathways in your brain to do the thing, right? It real it's exactly right. And I, it, I really, it really came to light when I got out of the Learjet and went to my commercial job. It was a, it was a challenging transition. I had a lot of flight hours, but now I'm flying a completely different airplane, a different way that I hadn't in, you know, your first six months to a year, you're just, it's just difficult. And now I look back on it now that I've done it for several years ago, it's so uh, why did I have such a hard time? But the difference is the pathways in your brain have been established. And now you really just, the brain knows how to do it exactly. And, and it has built that rep, uh, repetition in there to, to make it much easier. So that's what chair flying is doing. And I, and I used it a lot to help that when I was going through pilot training and, and really any airplane that I've ever learned to fly, I spent a lot of time going through that chair flying to try to help myself out. That's that's an interesting concept. I've never thought about that, um, but it, it makes sense. One of the one of the things I struggled with actually, which I think goes back to those brain pathways. Um, I'm transitioning into a Cirrus from a Bonanza, uh -huh. and the airplane is easier to fly. Um, you know, they, there's different systems and things like that, and whatever. And you know, I kind of read the checklist and repeat to myself what goes on, but actually on the ramp the thing that got me that completely threw me off was learning the new tail number it, it's amazing how primed my brain was to say bonanza versus cirrus and then the cirrus tail number and, and that, that was just kind of this weird thing that i didn't even think to practice but every time i was making radio calls i was like up oh, up oh, and and you know that that little hesitation just makes you like you you're falling behind even yep. though everything yeah. else was, yeah, that just a weird little thing that I learned recently. So it's exactly right. A lot of times when you're transitioned to a new airplane, when things get stressful and you're really having a hard time, you know, things are happening, you tend to fall back to your old habit patterns. Uh, I had an example in the military, we have to call gear down uh, to the air traffic controllers before we, uh, before we land. That's a required call. Okay. Um, and, but it's not required in the airline world. So when you first transfer over, you call gear down a few times and the captain looks at <laughs> you like, we don't, we don't make that call here. Yeah. But uh, it, it's just one of those things where you're, you're just, these habit patterns kind of bleed over and it, it, it's, it just shows that the brain has built these pathways and sometimes it's hard to relearn the new pathway. So I guess to sum it all up, the best way to, for me, as a pilot to relearn my new pathways was to think through and chair fly my, 
my missions as much as much as possible to you know get my brain in the new pathway so yeah yeah those are great tips um as we're wrapping up here one of my kind of favorite things in aviation is that we we all start with two buckets bucket of luck which is generally full and a bucket of experience which is generally empty and over time we we have events or incidences or experiences that cash in some of that luck and deposit it as experience. Um, do you have any events you'd like to share where that perhaps happened to you and, and what lessons you learned from those? Yeah, there's no doubt. I mean, things, uh, there's, you know, kind of like I was telling you about that landing, you know, having that guy in the jump seat on that one to call the winds, that's, uh, you know, whether you want to call it luck or the grace of God, I was grateful that I had somebody to give me some, a piece of information that I hadn't uh, remembered or heard that helped me make a better decision. So th there's definitely a handful through my flying career. Um, I've had a few close calls over the years. Some of them were totally out of my hands and it just, you know, we missed hitting airplanes together by not very much, just out of uh it just didn't, didn't, wasn't my day, but, uh, yeah. And then you learn from those experiences, whatever they are, you know, again, back to that, that Panama experience, I learned from that to realize I don't have to get this airplane on the ground. I, I, I mean, eventually I do, but it doesn't have to be right now. We can, we can go around and come up with a better plan. So I brought that along with me, uh, through the years and there's, I mean, we could spend a whole nother several podcasts of all the times I've done dumb things and forgot things. And, yeah. and then you go, okay, I'm not going to do that again. Um, but you know, I've flown for the most part, my entire military and civilian has been a crew airplane. And that's the beauty of having another person there to go. Uh, no, we're not. What are you doing? No, no, we need to do this. And sometimes it's me, you know, sometimes it's me saying something to the captain who's got twice the experience I do. So everybody misses stuff. We're, we're, we're not perfect. I've yet to have that perfect flight. I'm striving for it, but I've never had a absolutely perfect flight. So you just got to keep, you know, being a professional and doing what you can to, you know, to do it the right way, you know? And I, I learned over time, especially in the Learjet, you know, it, it's easy when you've flown an airplane for 17 years to get really complacent and not take it seriously. And it's, I just always want to be reminded that, you know, the business that we're in is, is serious and complacency really can kill if you, if you let it. So uh, I just have always tried to not take my job, you know, like, it's not the same as just getting in your car and driving to Walmart. You, there's some things that have to be, you know, done and done properly. So, so I don't, that probably didn't answer your question, but I, I just, I feel like there's, there's a handful of things. I try to learn from the post calls and the experiences I had and go, okay, what can I, what yeah. can I do better now? So. Do you have any plans to get back into general aviation flying? You know, I would say at some point, uh, I, I kind of feel my flying, but I fly a lot now and I, I feel like I get my feel of flying for the most part. However, there's some things like I'm talking to some folks on Instagram that I I've always wanted to fly a, a tail dragger. I've never learned how to do that. And I think 
think uh, I'm going to do that here in the next summer. So uh, I'll, I'll have some stuff on that. So I would like to learn to fly some things I've never flown before. Yeah. Um, but uh, that's, uh, you know, again, it's just, uh, it's all about, you know, money and being able, what you can go out and do and want to do. But uh, I, I do still have some mountains I'd like to climb in aviation, but I'm, I'm also very content where I'm at, what I've done and what I continue to do. Yeah, that's awesome. Well, I think on that note, I'd like to wrap this up. Um, you know, I'm sure people have an easier time finding you than me. <laughs> um, Combat Learjet <laughs> with a, is it underscore or a dash in between? Combat it, it's an Learjet. underscore. Okay. Yeah. yeah. So yeah. combat underscore Lear did on Instagram. Are you on any other platforms or is Instagram your main gig? Yeah, I got, uh, I'm on Facebook. There's a couple hundred thousand followers on Facebook and I've got a little Twitter presence, not much. I just mostly on there to watch news and that kind of stuff. And then, uh, I just owned up TikTok, but I, I, I put no effort into it. So it's probably yeah. just dying on the vine there. So, yeah. Have you, uh, yeah, that's it. That's it. Have you uh, explored Clubhouse yet? You know, I keep hearing that, and I haven't done it yet. So uh, yeah. I, I keep seeing it out there. I don't. I don't know much about it, honestly. So I'll uh, I'll um, invite you in. It's it's amazing. Okay, actually, it, it's dangerously yeah. amazing. I I'll warn you. Um, but but a great. How would you sum it up? There. Well, so okay. imagine we were having this conversation here. And then there's 40 yep. other people in the audience that can raise their hand and ask questions um, or, or if someone has a relevant experience. Um, you know, some of the rooms are more tight, more intimate, more focused. Some of them are very large, but they're more strictly moderated. So if you have, you know, a number of very famous people, they're not going to have everyone coming up on stage to ask questions um it, it's really it's really like kind of a radio show that you can call into um and you know there's various topics there's people all over the world um you know all sorts of life experiences so it, it it's really cool it, it's voice only which is a very interesting dynamic so there's no showing off of pictures or you know there's no messaging in the app even you you'd have to find someone on Instagram if you want to send them a text message. So it's, it's really focused just on voice. And, you know, especially as we're well, well over a year into this pandemic and distancing, you know, it, it's amazing how much you crave just talking to people. Right. Yeah. Interesting. All right. Well, I'll definitely look into it. Yeah. Yeah. yeah that's, we'll that's... stick around here after the call and I'll, I'll let you oh. in if you want. Um, it, okay. It's still in beta, so it, it's a little selective, but yeah. yeah. Well, thank you so much. Um, awesome. I will post links to your page in the podcast description. And um, are you still selling the patches? Can we send a link to that as well? Yeah, I've got a store up on uh, combatlearjet.com and I've got okay. shirts and patches and stickers and a little bit of everything up there, you know, aviation type stuff. So uh, I don't, uh, I probably don't, uh, mess with that too much but it's definitely out there and it's all dropship stuff and there's some cool products out there for sure yeah we'll, we'll definitely put a link to that in as well uh, all right awesome. steve thank you so much you bet thank you brother appreciate it and the combat learjet has left the building 
You can follow him on Instagram at combat underscore Learjet. Um, check out his website, combatlearjet.com. You can find all sorts of sweet merch. And uh, we actually have a new website too. So it's really just a new domain, deviationapproved.com. Pretty easy. No spaces, no dashes, deviationapproved.com. It'll take you to the show notes. You can see links, um, pictures, just all sorts of cool stuff there. Make sure to subscribe to the podcast and uh, give it five stars. And honestly, if if you do that, I'll be super happy and I'll keep finding cool guests just like the, the Combat Learjet to put on here. Thanks for listening and we'll see you next time.